Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I know when I've had enough, I fall on the floor. This week on Cinemodities, we are taking it back a ways to a time in Zach and I's history. In early 2010, right before Zach and I parted ways, Rob moved out, Zach went to college, all that stuff. We took a romantic trip to the New Mexican desert. And we titled it Lust in the Dust. There's going to be pictures from our trip in the show notes. Check them out. But for the next two hours, Zach and I are going to describe a very sensual time in our lives. What's the So sensual. I'm not even prepared for my own joke. What's the line from Brokeback Mountain? I wish I could quit you or I can't quit you. I wish I, I, wish I could quit you. So we had basically that same thing going on, except Zach was screaming at me. I quit you a long time ago. Now <laughs> that sounds more like it. Yes. All right. All kidding aside, we are going on with our grand Paul Bartel series, talking about his 1985 film, Lust in the Dust. But of course, before we can get into that, we have to talk about, well, where did we last leave Paul Bartel? And how did he get to filming a movie with Divine? And when we left him in Eating Raul in 1982, uh, afterwards, of course, he continued to be an actor. I looked at his list of acting appearances after Eating Raul, and there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. I'd never heard of. Nothing really stood out. I don't think there was anything majorly successful. Uh, there was no heartbeats, anything like that. But one thing I did find is that in 1984... Paul Bartel was in the original Tim Burton short, Frankenweenie. Did you know this? I kind of, no, I did not know that. Okay, because I know, I know Zach has told me about Frankenweenie before, and I've never seen it, and I know, I think Zach loves it. Um, Well, the the 2012 movie, the original short, no, the original short is weird. No, I know the weird, the original short is too weird for me. It's Tim Burton with Paul Bartel. I'm probably going to have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I know it's on the it's on the Blu-ray. I know that. Oh, okay. the, the okay. 2012 movie includes the short like it's a bonus feature. Right on. Well, yeah, uh, Paul Bartel was in that and a bunch of other acting stuff. But really, after the success of Eating Raul, uh, he was able to scrounge up some money. And from what I found, he was able to gather up $3 million, you know, multiple times the budget of Eating Raul for his next directorial picture, not for publication. And I do have to take some time because I watched not for publication and oh boy, did I love it. So it's a, it's about a reporter who who's the daughter of a man who started a hard hitting magazine called The Enforcer back in the day. But the father died, and the enforcer became the informer, and it's basically like a tabloid. Like, uh, you know, they, they want to... The, the movie literally starts with our main character giving an interview to a pimp, chasing him, like, while he's running through a field, and the pimp is being chased by his his women, but they're all dressed up in, like, tiger costumes. Like, not, you know, full-body costumes, but, like, 
sexy tiger costumes. And they're called the Tigresses, and they end up killing the pimp. And the reporter's like, we got the scoop, let's go. And that's how this movie starts. And it's a very weird Paul Bartel film, and it's great. The lead character is played by none other than Nancy Allen. Oh, Probably best known as Officer Lewis from RoboCop. Murphy, I'm a mess. And she's great in it. She has to get like a new... Uh, during the pimp scene, her photographer gets shot, so she has to get a new photographer, and they uncover this whole scandal with the mayor. And, oh, it's it's a it's a great movie. It's uh, one of the ones that was really tough for me to find. I was only able to find it through uh, True TV Movies, which we talked about back at the start of this series. But I have to mention that this movie has a very, very weird background motif of animals and and I don't want Zach to think this is going too off the rails, but we talked a lot about how Paul Bartel, when he has some creative control, there's always that great notion of sexuality playing a role in his films, right? There's like a sexual morality at play. That's yes. that's something we're going to delve into certainly with this. But, oh, absolutely. But, but proceed. And so this movie has some sexual aspects, but more in the animal sense i should say not i'm not talking like freaked with the heavy petting zoo where we literally get to see someone making out with a double-headed llama animatronic or puppet or whatever but but this movie like i said at the start you got this pimp who is in control of the tigresses who are rising against him and they all have like you know tiger costumes on and then there's a scene that never gets fleshed out and only happens once where it is heavily implied that Nancy Allen and her cat can talk to and understand each other. Hmm. Seriously. And and as the movie goes on, we get a scene in a bestiality club. Oh jeez. Seriously. Seriously. This is this, I'm not I'm not kidding you when I say that this animal and sex motif is part of this movie. But in this club where the reporters are going to kind of get the scoop cuz I think they have a tip that the mayor's going to be there. And he's scandalous for that reason and others. And and there's a whole string of burglaries that they're investigating as well. But in this bestiality club, they sneak in and they sneak in by saying, the two main characters, the reporter and the photographer, that they are performers. They're going to perform a musical number. And Nancy Allen is the one who doesn't think of this. The, re- the photographer does. And they get in and they're ready to go on stage. And she's like, what are we going to do? Like, we, we don't have, we can't sing, we can't dance, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they pull it off perfectly in one of my favorite musical numbers, probably in film history. And I am not kidding you. They sing a song. I'm going to put the clip in, but I'm going to sing some of it for you right now, Zach. You're the cat's meow. Meow. Yeah, you neater than a cheetah. Rawr. You're an opossum with whom my love could blossom eternally. Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. The bestiality club loves this. Like, it gets uproarious applause. And I should mention, Nancy Allen is dressed in a full-body lamb costume, and the photographer is dressed in a full-body bird costume while they're singing and dancing this amazing song. It was so amazing that after I watched it, before I even finished the movie, I texted Jeremy, and I was like, okay, listen, there's this song about animals fucking in a bestiality club. We got to cover this for an inferiority complex. And he was like, 
you into some weird shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is the that is the most appropriate response you could possibly have to that text. Yes. You're the cat's meow. Meow. I mean, you need is and a cheetah. <sighs> you are the feline to whom I make a beeline immediately. Cause baby. You bring out the beast in me. You're the cock of the walk. You're just as regal as an eagle. A pterodactyl. With whom I could be tactile, believe you me. Cause baby, you bring out the beast in me. When it comes to the animal urge, no one can equal mine. For with you, the urge to learn is working overtime. You got me frisky as a pup. You got me lower than a boa. You're an opossum with whom my love could blossom in any tree. Cause, baby, you bring out the beast in me. Very much. No, no, this is my big solo. Animals are so absurd. You've heard animals just wanna that i love this musical number so much um it's a great movie not for publication i really enjoyed it um uh the other things i wanted to mention bill engvall shows up a young bill engvall dressed as the preppiest person you could ever imagine like a swooped haircut and a pink ascot and stuff like that and i'm like wow it was a while before he went on the redneck tour you know (laughs) yeah he's just an actor before he did that shtick yep um there's there's a whole scene where a woman, the mother of the photographer, feeds fake birds. Like, she has seed, and she's holding it up to fake birds, like taxidermy birds, I should say, in her apartment, which is littered with them. And you see the seed falling to the floor, but you hear bird noises in the background. And I'm like, is the movie wanting me to think they're real birds, or is this woman crazy enough that while she has taxidermy birds, <laughs> she's playing bird noises in the background on, like, a stereo? Uh, There's a line in the movie where a a little person says the exact line, dwarf love is the strongest of all. Uh, At the end of the film, the the bad guy jumps out of a plane to leave the two main characters to die. And they both are like, we don't know how to fly this plane. So they decide to fuck. And uh, Paul Bartel makes his cameo at the end as a TV director in a wheelchair. (laughs) 
<laughs> so what you're saying is we should have talked about that movie instead of this one. I was I was tempted to do a switcheroo on you, Zach. But then From I the sound watched, of it, I would have liked to have had the switcheroo. Uh, yeah, but see, I was kind of torn after because I watched this before I watched Lust in the Dust, and I was kind of torn. And I figured we keep it because not only do I want to talk about Lust in the Dust, even though I think I might have liked Not for Publication better. I don't feel we could have done that to Divine. We've never talked about Divine on here before. And this is a great performance of, of Divine in this movie. Uh, if you could not tell, Rob stumbled over gender pronouns. Yes, he sentence. did. <laughs> yeah, I guess, we, I guess before we get started, we have to ask. Divine, I, everything I've read about Divine, the pronoun he is always used. Yes, that's what I've seen as well. So I just want to make sure, everybody, it's not our fault. We're going off precedent here. So director outrage everybody who came before us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to finish up the history, just if not for publication, like I said, he gathered up a huge amount of money, three million after the success of not for publication, not for pub. Uh, sorry, eating Raul, not for publication came out and apparently it was a flop. I couldn't find its domestic gross or anything like that, but it was apparently not well uh, received. I wonder why uh, by major audiences. I know. Yeah, they're not ready for. um. Uh, heavy petting zoos. <laughs> <laughs> Having petting zoo nightclubs. Yes. Oh, it's a great, it's a great musical number though. Like, like if, if anything, watch the musical number. It's probably on YouTube. Like, not for publication musical number. It, it's because baby, you bring out the beast in me in front of a bunch of bestiality people. Oh, it's hilarious. It's a great song. It's fantastic. So, without further ado, are you ready to jump into Lust in the Dust? I am, Rob. I am. All right. So, came out in 1985, and from what I found, budget of $2.5 million. So, Paul Bartel did have some chops still after the flop of Not for Publication. But according to what I found, this raked in a massive, massive $727,000. <laughs> On a budget of what? $2.5 million? $2.5 yep, yep. Another one of those. It's not as bad as Gigli. And, oh, everybody, you better get ready for the Gili connection to this movie, which is why I'm bringing it up. But it's still pretty uh, yeah. bad. 720K over two and a half mil. Uh, Paul Bartel, he didn't strike gold like he did with eating Raul. And it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, I think here on Cinemodities, we want the best or wanted the best for Paul Bartel before we were born. Uh, Seance Modities, check it out every Sunday at the restaurant. Um, but the other thing that I was really intrigued by with this movie was the writer, because I was like, you know, what is this movie? Um, I want to get into some of the John Waters connections we've already discussed about, you know, uh, Paul Bartel, or at least, you know, seeming connections. But I was like, who wrote this movie? What else has he done? Guy's name was Philip John Taylor. And as far as I can tell, every single one of his writing credits are for TV shows and then this. Like, this is the that only makes, movie. That makes written. a lot of sense. That makes I a know, lot of sense. Now, right? It kind of blew my mind. After I saw the movie, I was like, ah, this is, yeah, this is, this is something that a, a TV writer would kind of pump out, you know? And, and maybe try to inflate to get that 80, what, 83 minutes this movie is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a long movie by any means. Yeah. So now let's get into some uncorroborated facts. Maybe our favorite type of facts, right? <laughs> I could not find no, anything wrong. to back these up. These were a combination of Wikipedia sentences and uh, IMDb trivia lines. 
But, of course, as I watch this movie, probably biased because Divine is in it, and I, I know I'm a big fan of Pink Flamingos, I was getting a huge John Waters feel. And correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, but in previous episodes, we said that Paul Bartel was kind of, he was kind of in the middle of what John Waters was trying to do. He wasn't full John Waters. He was kind of a half of that motif, something like that, right? Yeah, it's uh, this, this, not that it complicates it, though, but it kind of, yeah, keep, keep going. I'll talk about more about my feelings with this film once you've okay. done your, uh, your, con- so, you explained out the history of the film. So while I felt I got a, I got a John Waters feel from this movie, um, what I found from, once again, uncorroborated sources, that supposedly John Waters was asked to direct this film, but he refused because he did not write it. And like I said, this is interesting because Zach and I have discussed this comparison before, and it definitely, to me, had a John Waters feel. Continuing on that, apparently the character of Big Ed, the elderly prostitute in the saloon in Chile Verde, was originally cast as Edith Massey. Edith Massey, of course, the woman in the crib in Pink Flamingos. Oh, where is the Eggman? I do hope the Eggman comes soon. Great performance. But apparently Edith Massey died soon after her screen test and was recast with someone different, a, a non-Dreamlander. Uh, dream is that what they were called? John Waters' crew, the Dreamlanders? I, I, I'm not a John Waters' person. I, I'm aware of him. I understand his role and impact on gay cinema of the 70s okay. but i i i've never been I, I i respect and admire the hell out of john waters but yes. i've never really latched on to any of his films tune in next month for the john waters series <laughs> oh, good that, that's that's when the cinemati's audience completely disappears that's, a, that's the first month where it goes to zero tune in next month for the list for the downloads crash of 2020 for cinemati's <laughs> <laughs> the cinemati's podcast gets the coronavirus and dies <laughs> yes keep but it topical so- folks keep it topical Exactly. That kind of, you know, added to that. Apparently someone else who, you know, put these facts on IMDb and Wikipedia had this John Waters knowledge. And it's interesting. You know, of course, it may or may not be true, but I felt I had to bring it up just because, you know, at least I got that sense. And lastly, I think before we jump into the movie or Zach's thoughts on it, uh, there's not much history of this that I could really find. Every time I see someone talking about it, sure, and, and Zach might be able to talk about this a little more, I found reviews of this movie, like articles reviewing it and stuff like that, and I usually try to stray away from those, at least the the big analyses, because I want to keep it fresh for when we record, but every article I found at the start, when they introduced this, they describe it as a cult classic, and I'm like, this might be a cult classic, but for the a very niche cult, you know? Like, there's some small cult of people that probably like this, which I'm probably now a part of, because I, I thought it was good fun. <laughs> what's the what's the cult from the first season of True Detective? The cult of the I, Yellow I, I King or something like I, that? I, I couldn't tell you. The stupid hick that's mowing the lawn in the second episode, and Matthew McConaughey's like, you Rob. could never be the bad guy! And I'm like, okay, I called it, the next six oh. episodes are useless. Rob, he is not the, the 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 deformed guy on the mower. He is the racist cop. Like, come on, Rob. He is a, he is the racist cop. You know that. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say I was trying to pick a fight by bringing up True Detective again. <laughs> no, I, I know you're trying to hurt me. The audience knows you're trying to hurt me, so I'm not going to take the bait. The on audience, that one. the audience probably thinks I'm trying to hurt them. 
<laughs> anybody who understands quality television figures you're trying to hurt them, but that's okay, a conversation so, for another day. Okay, so qual- you want to talk about quality television? We're going to take a six-hour detour into The Sopranos right now. Oh, <laughs> Okay, oh, God. so so like I said, I couldn't find a lot out about this movie. Uh, like I said, it's reported as a cult classic. It might be, but I had never heard of it until I think Zach and I were thinking about doing a Paul Bartel series, and I looked up his directorial credits, and I saw Lust in the Dust. The title intrigued me. I clicked on it, and I think in real time, I cut Zach off from saying something, and I was like, oh, my God, Cesar Romero and Divine are in a Paul Bartel movie? Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yeah, this movie, I guess to answer your question first, that there, no, there is not a lot of information on this, the same way there's not a lot of information on any of Paul Bartel's movies, and at least with this, though, I was surprised that apparently, I think just last year, they released this on Blu-ray? Really? Because I know the copy that Rob and I watched, like, somebody filmed it, like, like on their VHS camcorder, and... Oh, Oh, that's a good thing to bring up. This movie was incredibly difficult to find, and Rob found it as a TV rip from a seemingly Russian television station. It's on YouTube, apparently. Oh, in be- really? In, in better quality, I think you and what? I have. I certainly... Think- it, it okay. I, I won't do this real time, because it, it'll distract it, me too much. It might be a new upload, so I don't know. Okay, when, so, we, uh, uh, when I edit this, I'll, I might have to do a... Uh, do a correction. Break in? Like yeah, yeah. Hey, kids. <laughs> hey, kids. Rob's right. There's not a better version of <laughs> Lust in the Dust. Um, hey kids, Lust in the Dust is on YouTube. I would say it's marginally better quality than the version Zach and I watched. Certainly a more appealing aspect ratio. But the last thing I want to point out is that it seems to have been posted a day or two after Rob searched YouTube for this movie. So... I should have checked again, maybe, but at least you can find it if you want to watch it. But no, there's a Blu-ray, and on the Blu-ray, there's some bonus features, maybe around like an hour total. It's like, I think, three featurettes that are like about 20 minutes a piece each. After watching the movie and doing research, I would have rather have watched those than watch this, because I think there's more you can learn. Mm-hmm. And I... I, again, I do this with every episode, or every movie that we talk about in cinema. I always try to get feels like what's on YouTube, what's on like the podcasting sphere. Yeah. And there's maybe one or two videos on YouTube about this, like tops. From what I could find, there's only like two or three podcasting episodes about this. Oh, yeah. And the people who talked about it the most in depth, they absolutely love this, which I thought was surprising. And they were only talking about it because they had just concluded, I think, a John Waters series. And they mm. felt that by not talking about this, they weren't doing Divine's role in it justice. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Rob. There's not a lot of contemporary analysis on this. Yeah, oh, like, I, I, very sparse. I read Roger Ebert's review on it. I know him and Siskel did a review on it on their program back in the 80s. I didn't get a chance to watch that. And I understand 100% why nobody talks about this. <laughs> because in my opinion, this is like one step away from being genuinely awful. Not because they're like... Divine is fabulous. Lainey Kazan is fabulous. You mean Larry Gili's mother, Lainey yes. Kazan? Yes, when she's not getting injection injections into her buttocks. That this is, is what literally she's doing. 
my second note about this movie. When her name uh, came up on the credits, I wrote, Larry, Lainey Kazan? You mean Gigli's mother, Lainey Kazan? <laughs> yeah. Other than them, this I kind of hated this. And not just for the fact that like whoever our protagonist is, Guy McFace, and our villain, Guy also McFace. Mm-hmm. Everything about this, like it has some moments where it's pretty clever and funny, but at the end of the day, I think the highest compliment you can pay this film is that it feels like watered down John Waters. John Waters down? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I don't even like John Waters, is like I don't like his style. Like I again I respect it and I admire it, but it's just like as a personal taste, I'll I don't like it, but it made me go, oh, at least if you're going to do zany and weird, you do it properly. The same way John Waters does. And I 100% get why nobody talks about this. As in, like, when it comes to the Paul Bartel canon. I'm glad you bring this up, because like I mentioned before, now we can actually say the reason. This is why I did not pull the switcheroo on you, Zach. Why think... That we know, everybody in the audience, and we know, we love Paul Bartel. We wish he was still alive. We're contacting with a Ouija board this Sunday night. Stop by the restaurant. But you can't love someone by just looking at their greatness. We have to talk about their flaws as well. So I'm with you. I don't think I thought this was one step from awful. I I have a little higher of an opinion about it. But this is definitely not a great movie. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, it's there's there's some neat moments in this. And if it weren't for Divine and Lainey Kazan, like it would be nothing short of a dumpster fire. Yes, yeah. And and really I think my my notes highlight that is because, you know, uh, I have very very few quotes from this movie. Sure, there were things I really, really liked, some some certain lines we'll get to that I very much enjoyed, and Divine gives a great uh, performance, but I think I want to start there at this top level. Because right off the bat, you know, maybe first 10, 15, 20 minutes, you get the sense that this is a spoof movie. It's a parody of Westerns. And as far as spoof movies go, this isn't what I think I want or like from spoof movies. And probably not what the audience wants, right? Like, it's not that joke a minute. It's not that really, you know, hard hitting, like, oh, you know, this, like, let's make fun of this. Let's make fun of this. It's more of like they try and jam too much story into it, if that makes sense. Well, it's it goes between story and goofy vignette. It just switches back and forth, like on a dime. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what this movie is trying to do, because at certain points, like, the plot just comes to a grinding halt and we'll just have slapstick for like five minutes. Yep. And then like the last, what, 15, 20 minutes of the film is story. And then, yes. and then we'll yeah, have I... slapstick. And it's like, okay, wh- what is it that you're trying to do here? I'm glad you bring that up because um, something that I, one of the reasons that, you know, before I had watched this, when I was able to find a copy of it, um, and I sent this to Zach uh, a while ago, when I read the when I downloaded this, it came with a synopsis and the synopsis is very long and I won't get into the whole thing, but it is hilarious. It gave me more feeling that we needed to talk about this, which is why we you know, chose to do it. But the synopsis is very much about like people are trying to find the map to this gold. 
And that's kind of the knowledge I had going into this movie. And I was like, okay, you know, there's going to be a treasure hunt. There's going to be uh, some goofiness because I knew the maps were like tattooed on the asses of the women and stuff like that. It takes them like, what, an hour to get to that? <laughs> yep. And and that's where I was kind of blown away. I'm like, okay, you know, you know, okay, Divine's traveling this town. It's got to be because she wants the gold. No, she wants a job. Okay, yep. fine. Uh, and then it's like, okay, you know. Oh, she she kills another person with her thighs. Where's the gold? Where's the treasure hunt? What is the plot of this movie? And it threw me for a loop as well, Zach. Yeah, that's the thing that's so disappointing about this is that, like, I think you hit the nail on the head quite early on where it comes to the writing, and that it's somebody who's who's used to television mm-hmm. and they had to stretch out a thirty minute plot into into a feature length, short format, short format writer, absolutely. Yeah, and I have no idea, and plus, it doesn't have any of the hallmarks of Paul Bartel. Like, it doesn't have that, like, sexual morality that kind of has become a hallmark of him, as we've discovered over the course of the Paul Bartel series. Mm-hmm. With this, the, with uh, people or animals. <laughs> people or animals, obviously, I haven't seen a, was it not fit for publication? Not for publication. Not for publication, excuse me. And... I, so I can't comment on that. But from what I've seen so far, considering the first, th- I guess maybe not death race to a certain extent. Well, you know, but, we had that motif of the, well, it was more the public wanted intimacy from the driver and their navigator, but it was there. Sure. A little more it's, pulled back. Yeah. It's there, but it's not personal. It's yeah. there, but it's not personal as it is in eating Raul in private parts. Yeah. And that's one thing I really feel that like, again, we don't know if this was just a, a job for Paul Bartel. Mm, he mm-hmm. he felt because like you can't even, like like nowadays we kind of look at this and figure oh you have all these character actors why wouldn't this do well and it's like back in 1985 that wasn't a thing like you didn't yeah. have like sure there was a niece interest like I don't deny that like the 1985 you started to have the the genuine boom of the rental houses or like in the rentals like VHSs and whatnot but this this was never going to be a mainstream movie. This was always going to be something, even though it didn't probably didn't make money in theaters, it probably just made a healthy profit on home video just by the title alone. Sure. And yeah, I, I, it feels like a paycheck movie. And is that he needed something to kind of just prop up either his resume or just, you know what, in order to pay bills. Mm-hmm. This feels like a movie, whoever directed it, like I said, it doesn't, if you told me Paul Bartel directed this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you. It doesn't have his signature. And it just feels very hollow. It feels just like, again, it feels cheap. It feels very lazy. And it feels like somebody trying to do an imitation of John Waters. And by the mid-80s, John, I don't want to say John Waters' heyday was over, because I think even to this day, John Waters is, is pop, probably more popular in a mainstream way than he's ever been before. Sure. But it just feels like by the mid-80s, John Waters' shtick was not the sort of counterculture that people wanted. It, it feels like a film that's about five to like eight years too late. I, I agree, and, and I'm glad you bring that up, because I think that's half of it. The other half is, like I said, with the spoof aspect of this. Because, you know, this this is trying to be kind of that John Waters aspect. But at the same time, in terms of a spoof or a parody film, this is nowhere near someone like a Mel Brooks or anything like that. It doesn't hit as hard as those things did, John Waters or Mel Brooks. And that's kind of where my disappointment comes from it, that it was trying to be kind of half and half of those two and missing the mark on both ends. 
yeah, this this film feels like a creative misfire because I think even Roger Ebert's review at the time he said that like there's there's some neat moments here. Um, and I think the big thing that he kind of pulled from that Divine should have been our titular hero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not titular hero, excuse me. Should have been our protagonist. Oh yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And that's this movie should have been called Lust in the Divine. <laughs> yeah, because that it would have been more interesting to watch Divine be the man with no name than just doing the shtick that he's done his entire career. Yeah, and I I was really hoping for that because the first few minutes of this movie I was kind of totally on board when you know Divine, it, it starts with uh, uh, Paul Bartel doing the narration at the start. And then Divine is kind of out in the desert with her her mule, and she's going somewhere. She finds a watering hole. She takes off her pants and gets in. Oh, well, before that, she, like, falls over, or the yes. donkey falls over, and you see the canteen break or bust open, and she has a great line. She goes, my gin! Oh, my God, I'm going to die from thirst out here! My gin! Oh, my God! I'm going to die from thirst out here! <laughs> and then she gets into the into the the lake or the the oasis or whatever you want to call it, and the uh, the uh, the guy with no name as we know him now shows up and she does the whole monologue where she's like, "Oh my God, are you gonna are you gonna take me and take advantage of me and ravish me like I've never been ravished before, you fiend?" And I'm like, "Okay, I'm on board with this. Like Divine's yep. doing her doing his her shtick." And <laughs> Madre de Dios, what are you doing? Who are you? Where do you come from? I said, who are you? Put that down. What do you want? It's me, isn't it? You're going to take advantage of me. You're going to have your filthy way with me under the hot desert sun, aren't you? You're going to ravage me like I've never been ravaged before. Your hot sweat sliding over my body as we roll in the dust. Oh, as you violate my innermost parts. As you pound against me in orgasmic animal passion. Oh, God. You're disgusting. And then it just kind of devolves and gets slower and slower. And I'm just waiting for crumbs to fall out. And, it, and that's kind of the thing is where it's like, you know, the next joke doesn't come until she is just monologuing and telling about her flashback and how she got raped by this gang member or this whole member of gangs, gang of members, whatever it is. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm just like, I'm just pleased. Like, let there be anything. And it's really, I'm not saying it was tough to get through because, you know, I think, like we said, we respect Paul Bartel and we're watching these movies, but it didn't hit as hard as the ones we've seen and talked about previously. Yeah, this this is, again, it's a Paul Bartel film in name only, as I see it, because there's none of his, his calling cards here. It's... I I would love to have known why he made this because I know mm. obviously like you said they wanted to cast like, I don't think they cast Edith Massey I think it was they were afraid like, she, I think she screen tested mm-hmm. but they were afraid to because they didn't want it to become like a genuine ripoff of a John Waters film. Mm, I did I did read something like that yeah where Paul Bartel yeah, was definitely uh, timid because he was like oh I'm I'm casting one of the main crew of Paul Bartel I'm sorry of John Waters. Um, what's that going to mean type of thing? Yeah, because you have Divine, and Divine is John Waters. That was that was his mm-hmm. muse. So th- th- there's kill, no splitting. Kill everyone. Legalize cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, no, Divine's great. Like that's and that's if it weren't for him, like this would be this would be a genuinely painful movie. 
Oh, absolutely. hundred um, percent. Yeah. I, I, I it, it's kind of baffling. You know, it's like I said, I, I feel we need to talk about this because we have to talk about Paul Bartel's low point or points. Maybe we didn't talk about cannonball a lot, but cannonball was another one where I was like, eh, you know, there's some stuff there, but okay. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's still at the same time. It's, it's a bummer. You know, I wish once again, I think I said it now on every episode of this series, we got to get Paul Bartel through the seance so we can ask him these real questions. Seance commodities. Seance commodities. Absolutely. Come, come by this Sunday. Uh, and we have to limit it to what? Less than 500 people. Otherwise it gets shut down by the fire marshal. Corona, coronavirus. Yes, yes, yes. We all have to stay three feet away from each other. <laughs> Otherwise the have- spirit won't come back. <laughs> the key thing of a seance is that everybody holds hands, but we have to figure out a way to do it without that. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, folks. It's, a, it's some sort of weird stuff we have to figure out the Cinemati's restaurant. We, we're doing the opposite, everybody. We're not cleaning everything. We are hiring people to come in and... and if you, it's kind of like those parties. Remember the chicken pox parties people would have? Oh, yeah. Where it'd be yeah. like people get sick. We have that at the Cinemati's restaurant. We have Corona night. Get yourself <laughs> infected so you don't have to worry about it later on. I think, uh, I think it's best summed up by exactly what I said to the health inspector last week. How do you clean an infinite void? Why even try? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the health inspector never got to report back to his bosses because he got lost in the infinite void. <laughs> Boy. That happens to Corona. Actually, we are the federal government has contacted us. They know about our infinite void, and they're asking us to put the Corona in there. Very similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're gonna put the Corona into a, into a crate. We're just gonna put it. We're gonna hire some poor, poor Zacharob waiter to just push it back in a cart. <laughs> Warehouse 13 is a part of the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how we that's how we really make money, folks. Like, oh, we talk about how, like, oh, we're always in the red. But then we know how we make money, Rob, right? We mm-hmm. we have those those government contracts. Oh, I'm licking my lips at the government funding right now. You didn't yeah. you didn't you thought that Mark Cuban money was good. Nothing beats that government funding. <laughs> sweet, sweet government relief aid. <laughs> I want I want to see that headline. The Fed injects one point five trillion dollars into the Cinemodities restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> that, that's a sweet gig, folks. That's what makes it all worth it. We have the the little corner where we keep our infectious diseases. <laughs> It's one of the stores on Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> one of those like time of the century like facades, but it says right next to diseases. the barber shop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the tobacconist. Oh yeah, that's right. We have a tobacconist. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Restaurant. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get but there. We'll I, get there. I think we've talked about you know this movie doesn't work as John Waters doesn't work as a spoof. Uh, Zach and I do have low opinions, but they're a little different from each other. Sure, we can get into scenes, but do you think it's time for a plot breakdown, if that's possible? Do you think it's time? Rob, I, I'm going to let you do it, Rob. It, it, my, you know, I'll, let me do mine first. Okay. Okay. Divine shows up to town. Guy McFace. Oh, I'm sorry. Guy McFace, something divine. Evil Guy McFace. Divine snaps necks, cunnilingus. They go to a town. Shenanigans ensue, but like shenanigans with the the most lowercase s you can possibly imagine. Stuff happens. People are in got guy McFaces are in bed for some reason. I don't know why. Treasure, Lainey Kazan, and Divine are sisters have tattoos on their butts. 
good guy McFace gets <laughs> treasure. Old timey prostitute gets on the back of horse with guy McFace right off into the sunset. And possibly one of my favorite, favorite end title credit sequences. This was all filmed in New Mexico. <laughs> yes. Filmed on location <laughs> in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's my understanding of the plot of Lust Lust the Dust. See, that's why that's why I brought up our romantic trip to the New Mexican desert, Zach, because this was filmed in New Mexico. <laughs> yes. Check out the show notes for sexually explicit pictures. <laughs> yeah, so so explicit. So okay, I uh, I think that's that's fair how you described it. Um, uh, Divine is on the move. She's going into town. She meets up with the man with no name, who we later learn his name is Abel Wood. <sighs> Abel Wood. Like, I'm like, I, this is, what I was, I was, I'm with you. I'm with you, Zach. I really wanted to like this, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I was just like, okay, okay. So, uh, Divine and Abel Wood get to the town of Chile Verde. They come into the saloon run by Lainey Kazan. Whose name is? Did I even write that down? <laughs> uh, Larry Gili's mother, Lainey Kazan, and we get the sense that they're there for no other reason than uh, Divine is trying to outrun the Hard Case Gang, who, in a flashback, like we said, she d- she describes in detail, apparently, to Abel Wood that the five members of this gang raped her. And while the little person member of the gang was eating her out, she crushed his head between her thighs. Mm. Or broke his neck or just damaged his neck because he's alive later on. I, I didn't like that. I, I, I wanted I, I him did, to be dead. I, I like that as a running joke, though. I did find that amusing as a running joke. Oh, absolutely. I, I have to agree. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie because that was one of the first things that blew me away in this flashback. You know, Divine's asleep. All the gang members are asleep. We see the little person kind of crawl up her dress, and you see that something sexual is going on, and then you hear crack, and she op- she like lifts up her dress and looks down, and this dude is just like bleeding at the mouth, you know, his neck broken, and she's like, "I better get out of here." <laughs> it has its moments, I guess. It is does. What we should say, it, yeah. That's the problem with this movie. It's like it, there are some gems, like there is some really funny stuff, but it's solely from. Larry Geely's mother mm-hmm. and Divine. Other yep. than that, yeah, it, I, it's it's dry. I was really upset. Um, so uh, Cesar Romero plays the priest or the preacher or whatever he is, the father at the local church, and I'm like, wow, they gave him nothing to do until the very yeah. end, really, yeah. and it was such a letdown because I was hoping, I was looking forward to that in my notes. As I've been so excited about saying, you know, Lainey Kazan, Larry Gili's mother, Lainey Kazan, I wanted to talk about, like, you know, Cesar Romero, the Joker himself. And we never get any moment where I was able to do that. It's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you could tell they only got him because, like, oh, it's kind of like the Ed Wood thing, you remember? It's like, oh, you can get this person. But why? Doesn't matter. We just can. And that's, <laughs> that's what it feels like. Yes. So they run in, they ride into town. Uh, you think it's because they're getting away from the hard case gang. There's even something where all the town members are hiding from the the uh, the hard case gang, which never comes up again. When they show up later in the movie, it's like the first time they've ever seen them. 
Um, so very inconsistent. Uh, we realize or we get the sense that Divine wants a job at this saloon. We don't know why. We don't even know why she's tra traveling the desert. We think it's because she wants this job, apparently. She says she's a singer. She sings a song, which I got no problem with. Uh, but then kind of, you know, what? Abel Wood takes a shower. He has sex with Lainey Kazan. Uh, he's Larry Gigli's father in canon. Because of this, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, Larry Gigli from what L.A. or no? We don't, I don't even know where that movie took place. It took place in the Baywatch. He's a product of a, a of a Western gangster and Lainey Kazan, the uh, the peddler of whores or whatever Divine calls her, and like nothing happens. I think they some of the townsfolk don't like Abel Wood, and they try and lynch him, but he gets saved by Big Ed. And and like we said before, the the plot just spins its wheels until the hard case gang shows up, because finally there's a shootout, and it's a lame shootout. But after the shootout, the hard case gang is like, "Hey, Divine, we've been looking for you because you have half half of a map to a treasure buried on your or tattooed on your ass." And I'm like, "Why wasn't this introduced thirty minutes ago when she first yep. encountered them? Like this would have made the at least." She's running from them, and she has to hide this secret. But instead, we get brief mentions of townsfolk talking about gold. The same musical flourish plays every time someone says the word gold. Why would anybody want to kill him? Gold? Bed wasn't slept in last night. And it's like, okay, I want this. Give me more. Give me more, please. But instead, what? We get a song from Lainey Kazan. Yep. Yep. Uh, we get we get the the piano players in love with Divine, and she ends up breaking his neck as well. <laughs> what's his Rob? Come on, Rob. What's his name? Red Dick. <laughs> and why is he called that? On account of his red hair. There you go. <laughs> so I I actually have to say about that point in the movie, I was actually like, no, like I didn't want his neck to be broken while he's going down on her. I was excited for them to hook up. But he dies, and he literally dies. They take his body out, all that stuff. And then and then finally, in the last half an hour, it gets going. And there's an actual plot about we have to find hidden gold. We're all chasing after it, and we're going to shoot each other for it. Yeah. Like, the, the first, like, from 15 minutes to an hour in this movie, almost nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, vignette after vignette of just, like, nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that that's kind of where I was... Like, one of my notes is, is Lainey Kazan about to sing a song? Yes, she is. And it's a good song. She's like, let me show you down, or she's like, let me show you my south of the border. And I'm like, okay, you know, some of that sex, Paul Bartel sexual nuance, that type of stuff. But other than that, I was grasping at straws to, like, find out where this was going and what was going to happen. And, you know, and, 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 like, there was one line, I think, in the middle. Well, two. One I already mentioned. Um, Divine wants a drink, and she's like, haven't you had enough? And she goes, I know when I've had enough. I fall on the floor. And I'm like, I feel you, Divine. Give me another bottle. Rosie, don't you think you've had enough? I know when I've had enough. I fall on the floor. Honey, this stuff isn't going to solve your problems. And <laughs> the other line, I the other there was one line I actually like laughed out loud at, is that uh, Abel Wood is doing something ridiculous. I don't know. He's, well, no. I shouldn't even sell it that way. Abel Wood is just walking around town. He's not doing anything. He goes to Cesar Romero in the church. And other than that, he's trying to drink at the bar. But 
Henry Silva, with the crazy Hispanic accent, hates him for some reason. Like The movie doesn't set it up. He just hates this outsider. And there's one scene where he gathers all... He's like, he's got to be here for the gold. And you hear the same musical flourish. And we're like, what fucking gold as the audience? And then he gathers everybody in the, in the saloon... And he says, my friends, my fellow Mexicans, members of the Chile Verde Rotary Club. That's the one line that got a wholehearted laugh out of me. But that's it. Like, that's, that's, everybody knows. That's Rob grasping at straws. <laughs> <laughs> my friends, Mexicans, members of the Chile Verde Rotary Club. This stranger is too big for his damn boots. Are we going to stand for it? Are we? We all know why he's here, don't we? Don't we? He's after the gold. The gold of Chile Verde. That's kind of like what a lot of this movie is, though. That like, there's really you have to grasp at straws. There's really not a lot to like. Is there anything like? genuinely good about this like i I would say the 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 part where the movie actually turned around for me that i was fully on board fully intrigued is the final showdown slash mexican standoff scene where they're all around the treasure chest i really like that where they're all like they're all like okay we're pointing guns at each other and then someone new shows up and they move around to make room for this new person (laughs) in the mexican standoff and then, like, at one point, Lainey Kazan doesn't have a gun. She goes, this isn't fair. So they all go, oh, okay, pick up the gun. And it's, I was like, oh, my, finally, something's happening. <laughs> yeah, that, at least there, the stories and the characters, like, connect. Yeah. Because prior to that, it didn't really happen. Exactly. Any meaningful way, that is. And even at that last scene, we get the stupid exposition of Cesar Romero being like, ah, your sisters, I'm your father whatever he says something crazy mm-hmm. and i'm like okay in any other movie i would hate this because it's just it's just explaining the story and the mystery but here i'm like dying for it i'm dying for thirst out here because my gin got spilled at the beginning <laughs> and i'm finally getting my like like becoming you know unparched it, it's crazy yeah that's really <sighs> That's the thing, though. Is I feel like I'm being too hard on this, but at the same time, though, it's like there's not enough substance that, like, it, yeah, I feel like I'm punching down in a way. Like, this should not be <laughs> like as I was watching this, I kept thinking that like it was a TV movie. Like, it, yeah. it felt like something that like oh, would air on like oh god, because it would be like what a Russian TV movie. <laughs> well, whatever Channel Five was in Russia back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know. Um, but yeah, like this feels like something that would like air on like Cinemax, like in the early mm-hmm. 90s. That's just kind of how cheap it feels. Mm-hmm. And you look at this, and like, of course, there's production value. Like, you can see some of the money on the screen. Like, the sets are there. It's just that you wish it was in support of like an like, even like semi interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Is, is Paul Bartel credited as like a co writer or anything or like a screenplay? No, I couldn't find any of that. He is he director. No, yeah. He's solely director. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, this, this must have been just a paycheck for him. And that's why he kind of just didn't care. Yeah. Not even producer, you know? Yeah. This was a game. The guy, the guy who played Abel Wood was one of the producers, Tab Hunter. Yeah. 
I was reading what that he was a, a gay actor in Hollywood, and that's why this kind of um, yep, drew his attention. Which I, I respect that. Oh sure, but it's just it's it's a painfully bland movie, and that's why like when you were even saying things like, "Oh, this is a cult classic," like obviously you got a Blu-ray release, mm-hmm. which is something that even though that's not a huge benchmark nowadays. There are still a lot of other movies out there that deserve attention, cough, elves, cough, that <laughs> haven't gotten it. Whereas something like this, where it's like, again, I don't want to see any movie disappear, but <laughs> I don't, like, if this was like solely something that was on DVD, I'd be like, okay, at least it's preserved. But again, like, there's, like, I have no interest in ever revisiting this. And the weird thing was that, like, in the podcast I was listening to with the guys, and I did the thing that I, I, you know, I think Rob's mentioned it before that he hates it when people, like, stop to, like, fact check something in real time. Oh, yeah. We, we My, I think we only talked about it once ago, but I, I think when we first started this podcast, I was like, Zach, I'm not against looking stuff up. I'm against telling the audience we're looking something up because that is bullshit. You know, imagine you're listening to a podcast. Imagine listening to us. Like, that's not even beat around the bush. Imagine you listen to Rob and Zach, and we don't know something. And Rob goes, you know, okay, uh, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey was born in 1870. Is that true? Let me look it up. Click, click, click. Yeah, it's true. That's the, that's the biggest bullshit. You can lie to your audience, and people will believe it just because you said you've looked something up. I hate that. Yeah, but that's not what they did, though. That's not what they did, though. That's okay, what I, okay. I, I feel like I was just using that as a comparison. They did the thing that I hate where they play a movie's trailer. They're like, oh, this week we're oh. talking about Lust in the Dust. You have to listen to like three minutes of just like stuff. And it's like, I, I, if I've seen the movie, I don't need to hear the trailer. And no. if I haven't seen the movie, the trailer is not going to give me any sort of really genuine clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's I don't. I don't, even, I don't even watch the. I don't. I usually never watch trailers for anything, whether they're out or not. But uh, I can't imagine even wanting to put a clip of that in an episode. That's crazy. Yeah, that's yeah, that drove me nuts. But they all loved the movie. They thought it was phenomenal. They thought it, it was on par. Uh, not on par. They said it would make a great. There was another movie they had in there. They said a triple feature, oh. but one of the movies was Blazing Saddles. Uh, that and, of course that draws the strongest comparison of the other spoof. The classic, I would say, spoof of Western spaghetti westerns. Yeah, that's. But like, I've never seen Blazing Saddles in its entirety. Okay. But I, I can from what I have seen, I know this would not hold a candle to that. Mm-hmm. I like, I like, like I've, I've said to you know on this podcast and Zach many times before. I am a big Mel Brooks fan. Blazing Saddles, I've always been kind of all right on. Um, I'm one of the people that actually likes uh, Silver Streak with. Um, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, which is one of their first appearances together. But, you know, that's kind of just to bring it back to that spoof aspect. While I was watching this and, you know, every five minutes I was like, man, I would really like to rather be watching, you know, high anxiety. Mel Brooks's spoof of Alfred Hitchcock movies or, or you know, top secret, the, the Val Kilmer spoof of spy movies. And even part of me was like, geez, I'm not even a big fan of it, but I would rather watch Spaceballs than this. <laughs> oh, my. It, it's that bad folks it's that bad Spaceballs isn't terrible my parents own it on VHS and that's how I first saw it so it's got some nostalgia for me <laughs> oh okay I figured you wouldn't like that movie hey, uh, the thing that I like about it is when they spoof Alien because it's a spoof of sci-fi focused on Star Wars but there is a chest burster scene at the end 
where the chest burster happens and then the little alien that comes out does a musical number in a diner and it's great. <laughs> I really like that part of Spaceballs, the very end. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with this guy? I don't know! Bring some water! Water my ass! Bring this guy some Pepto-Bismol! Waitress! Waitress! What did he order? Oh, he had a special... That's what I ordered! I changed my order to the soup! Good move. Spoiler alert, folks. I've never seen Spaceballs. You don't have to. You've seen the definitive Star Wars parody known as Thumb Wars. Yes. Which we, are, which we are still waiting for. We oh, are still F- waiting Thumb- for it. Yeah, we've seen Thumb Wars. We're waiting for Thumb We've seen Thumb Wars, the Phantom Cuticle, but we're waiting on Thumb Wars Episode 9. The Thighs of Sky, of Sky Skipper. Skipper. I don't. This web thumb.com has become a favorite. Like I haven't favorited it, but it's one of the websites Google recommends to me along with like the the bus schedules in Fort Collins because <laughs> I go to the website so frequently to check if it's been released and I'm disappointed every goddamn day. <laughs> yeah, at this point I think this is kind of becoming one of those things where we're never going to get it. Like we I it's just it, we're, we're getting to that point. We need we need the the séance modities for th- the thighs of Skyskipper because it died before it ever lived. <laughs> yeah. Poor one have out, you, folks. I guess, I guess I have to ask, have you ever seen High Anxiety? No. Okay. That's probably my favorite parody movie of all time. I hope we can discuss it one day, but uh, it's probably like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the masterpiece of parody and spoofs. And that's kind of what I wanted from this film. Once I got the sense that it was going to be the spaghetti western, this, you know, divine, you know, Lainey Kazan, it's getting crazy with the, you know, there's there's this implied rape. We don't see it, but, you know, we see prosthetic breasts for like two frames when the little person rips divine's blouse off. And I'm like, OK, this this should be good. This is what I want from Paul Bartel. He hasn't done, at least from what we've seen, a spoof, a parody, a, a, a crazy comedy. And it just. You couldn't live up to those expectations, and it was a bummer. Yeah, that's kind of things that, like, you hear. I remember when Rob and I were going through the the, the Paul Bartel canon, and we heard about this, like, oh, oh, oh we got it. Like, yeah. how can we not do it at this point? And then, like, we get to it, and it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> we could have done private parts again. <laughs> <laughs> we could really have argued about it properly. Oh, gee, what do you mean properly? Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob, I feel like uh, this was almost one of those movies that, like, almost, again, like, halfway through, I was tempted to put Death Wish on. Like, this is, like, oh. this, this was one of the times, like, I, I, again, it's not as bad as the Aristocats, 
Mm-hmm. But I was close. Thank God. Thank Death God. Wish, you, Death Wish 2 was close. I had my you, finger on the button. If you came out here telling me that you liked Aristocats better than this, I would have been like, Zach, no, that is no, that is a no. mortal sin. <laughs> yeah, it is a mortal sin. No, I'm not that. Oh, no, 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 no. Aristocats is like bo- almost bottom of the barrel. When are we going to get that live action remake in the style of Cats, the Aristocats? Don't give them ideas. Oh, they, don't, don't worry, Zach. They've had that idea. <laughs> yeah, I know they have. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, but I kind of feel you. You know, as I was going through this movie, that first hour when I'm just, you know, parched, dying for something to happen, and we 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 only get two musical numbers in the whole song, uh, the whole movie, I'm like, geez, you know, this is, I guess the equivalent for me is that when this happens, I start to do my research on the history of the movie while the movie is playing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually not a good sign. That is an indicator that uh, this is not an enjoyable viewing experience. But it is such a letdown because, you know, I still I'm never not going to respect Paul Bartel. Um, hell, you know, when we finish this series, I'm going to have watched all his movies. I've been thinking about like giving a ranking or at least talking about which I think I like or don't like. And it, it's kind of a bummer to find the ones that are, you know, not what I want from him. But I guess, you know, we have to say that's kind of the. The hallmark maybe of a director, a working director. You know, Paul Bartel was never somebody who got to do whatever they wanted. You know, they they were never those like, uh, you know, uh, I, I get I don't know maybe maybe this is an incorrect comparison or, or something to reference, but like a Jimmy C, where he does his well, projects. Well, that's that's the most extreme like, exactly. example. Yeah, but you know, it's like Paul Bartel had to work. He had to make money, and even though he had some hits. And he had some great movies that I love. Other people might not love. You you kind of have to take the whole package, right? Yeah, that's. But like, think about Paul Bartel. Those like private parts. There's there's. I know we debated it. Masterpiece. Like, a, yes. Yeah, no, it's very well made. No, it deserves a lot more attention. Like they, that deserves a Blu-ray release. Mm-hmm. That deserves a blue. I get it. There's things that obviously there's contractual things. Like I get it. But that deserves it. Like, but like all of his movies have some meaning, even like the Roger Corman nonsense where Roger Corman's just like, I don't care. Just get it out the door as fast as you can. Yep. And that's where like, if, if you can make a Roger Corman movie have some sort of like subtextual meaning, then yeah, like that's great. And obviously eating rules its own thing entirely. But that's the thing that makes this so disappointing is that like, and yeah. obviously he he was working for that money and just, you know what? Another thing to add to his resume so he can get another job. Obviously class struggle being the last really noteworthy film he ever made. Like in the sense, like I think that's one of the ones that he's most known for after eating Raul. Yes. Yes. So and no, then I mean, that was his second to last movie as well. After scenes from the class struggle, it was uh, shelf life, which I've only seen the first three minutes of. And I turned it off because I thought I was going to have an aneurysm from how crazy the first three minutes were. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it I'm with you. It's a bummer. It's a letdown. It's uh but like I said, we gotta we gotta talk about Paul Bartel. We can't talk just about the highlights. Gotta talk about those flaws as well. Otherwise otherwise I would say we couldn't even call this a Paul Bartel series. It would be a Paul Bartel highlight series if we talked about the good. Gotta talk about those low points also. And I wanna use that to transition into not only was this movie, as we said many times now, a letdown or a bummer for us. But there were two big things in this movie, like plot-wise or storytelling-wise, that really, really bummed me out in the sense of I groaned as I watched them. 
And the first one I want to bring up is that uh, when Divine joins forces with Abel Wood and the the Oasis, and they're both traveling to Chile Verde, uh, I think, you know, Divine is like, oh, are you going to steal me? Are you going to take me? Should I come with you? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Abel Wood isn't saying anything. I think I don't think he has a line till they get to Chile Verde. But she, Divine is so kind of turned off or annoyed, frustrated by the fact that Abel Wood isn't saying anything. But she knows Rosie, the character, she knows that she needs to go with Abel Wood. We get this weird, awkward shot where they're discussing this in front of a tree and a gravestone. And Rosie says, oh. Uh, you, you don't talk at all. I'd rather be with, you know, cactus, dead cactus Kaplan over there than talk to you. And we get a f- zoom in, not a zoom in, but a full cut to a shot of the tombstone. And then the moment that gold is mentioned in the movie, my note is exactly, so it's just painfully, painfully obvious that that's where the gold is buried, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where the gold is buried. And Zach knows, this audience knows, if I find something painfully obvious, I don't like it. And this was absolutely painfully obvious. And that was a huge letdown. Did you pick up on that? Well, I mean, I don't even know about the knew about the gold stuff. You know, I knew it as soon as the movie started. I was like, they're gonna search for lost treasure. Oh, here's a random tombstone out in the out in the desert. There's no other tombstones. Where do you think the gold is gonna be buried? And even I feel if I didn't know that, and you watch the first hour of the movie and you get to the gold plot, you're going to be like, well, well, fuck. There's only one other set piece they've ever had in this film. Where else is it going to be? Did you feel the same way? Yeah, but like at that point, though, it's kind of like I just didn't care. Oh, you were, it's like, okay. It, it, was, yeah. it, was so, like, it was so contrived at that point where I'm just like, like it's going through the motions. It's yeah. like that's, yeah. that's what you have to do when you write things for television. It's like I know Rob is much more... Enamored with serialized television than I am. Okay, you want to and talk about the Sopranos real quick? <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's some beast entirely. But when it comes to procedural crime dramas, it's like as specific. Okay, you want to time, talk about Boo real quick? <laughs> exactly. Like again, it's usually what happens. About like twenty to twenty-five minutes, and we will be introduced to the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it'll be like, but they won't be introduced as the bad guy. But you can just tell by the specific time in the actual program that like, oh, this person's gonna be the bad guy. And it's the exact same time, give or take two to five minutes. Yep. Every single week. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I Zach does it. not love it. Zach does I was, not love it. I was it. watching some old school Law and Order the other day. Uh, I, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm like, Zach is Zach is going to cut this out and brand me for this, or beat me for this. Beat and brand, probably hot whip type of thing. Um, lust in the dust. Uh, uh, I was watching some old school Law and Order. Because there are a few episodes at the end of season 16 where one of the detectives is played by Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher Moltisanti in The Sopranos. That's it. That's all I have to say, Zach. TV. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about Lost? You want to talk about Adventure Time? Let's do it. Let's let's do it. No, no more. Bad touch. Bad touch. Non-flashback. (laughs) Non-flashback. You got my plate. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's... Oh, he did it! My plate! Oh, my brain is burning! <laughs> now I'm flashback! Now I'm flashback! Oh! Oh! Leatherface, you bitch! Oh! Look what 
what you did to my sonny Bono, wig Oh, God damn, I can't believe it. You have to buy me a new plate cover. You have to buy me a new plate cover, Leatherface. Oh. Yeah. That's the thing with this, though. It's like, it feels very television-esque. And, like, and that's yeah. where yeah. I'm just surprised that, like, like I would imagine you probably use television sets, if I had to guess. It, it sure looks like it. It looks like those limited, the interior of the saloon. I only think there's, you know, a possible two angles, maybe three that we ever get. Other than that, what? It's a hallway. It's town square. The inside of a confessional, which anybody can whip up real quick. Yeah, it's not hard. And yeah, it is. It is very small. It doesn't feel like a movie. Absolutely. It feels like a, a, a serial, like an elongated television show. Yeah, TV movie. Movie of the week. But like the most raunchy movie of the week imaginable. Yes, yes. Do you know the uh, the the uh, other detective aside of uh, Michael Imperioli? It's the weirdest thing. Oh, good lord, Rob! The two detectives. The break, Rob. The two detectives are Michael Imperioli, Italian man, and Dennis Farina. Of course, Rob. They investigate someone driving a car into a train. It's a great episode. (laughs) Okay, so The Sopranos season six. Good Lord, Rob. Say, save it. Save it for later, Rob. Save oh, it for later. Maybe that'll be a bonus episode where Rob rants at the audience by himself for six hours about how great he loves, how much he loves The Sopranos. <sighs> how have we, okay. I, I wasn't going to do this, but now I kind of feel I have to. Rob rants at the audience for six hours. How's that different from any other episode of Cinema? Oh, is this a, uh, is this a rap horn moment? Are we doing this? I don't even, I don't have, this is, hey folks, if you couldn't tell, this is my mouth. I don't have an app on my phone to do this. This is all Rob right here. (laughs) No soundboard for Rob. (laughs) Anytime we mention it, he's going to do that from now on. It's a great noise. It's an obnoxious noise, but it's a great noise. (sighs) We, We went off on this big tangent because that was, um, the, the first thing I was really upset about. This all came from how they they showed a close-up shot of this gravestone. They pointed it out in the movie. Of course, that has to be where the gold is buried. And I, the movie let me down in that aspect. The second aspect the movie let me down was that the very end, we are basically told as an audience that Divine shoots, shoots herself, himself. Rosie in the movie shoots herself. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't. What? What? I, this last scene made no sense to me because Abel Wood and Big Ed are going away with the treasure. Divine is left in the dust, going like, "Oh no, take me with you!" Like, "I'm, I'm good. I love you, Abel Wood." Blah blah blah. And she's like, "Oh, what's the use?" She pulls out her little, you know, Derringer pistol. She points it at her face. It cuts to them. We hear a gunshot. They do the cross on their bodies to say, like, "Oh, you know, we lost another one." And the next immediate scene is her alive, just eating a bird. Yes, yeah, so I thought. In all honesty, if you are going to have a lackluster movie, if you have Divine eating like, uh, like what? I want it's not a live hawk because obviously she shot it though, but it's eating a straight up just hawk by ripping it. Yeah, with off. some feathers in it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's if you're going to end your lackluster movie, that's one way to do it to get my attention. I, I know, but take out take out the implication of her shooting herself 
Because I no. get it. The gunshot is her shooting the bird to eat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But they don't play it. They, It's too quick. In terms of a comedic beat, they don't give it time to breathe for us to make sense of that. Like, I was like, oh, oh Rosie killed herself. No, she didn't. What? She's just eating a bird? It took me, like, 30 minutes after I finished the movie to realize, oh, she shot the bird. But then why would they do the cross symbol? Because they're looking at her when the gunshot occurs. And I, I, I don't know. I was just like, this ending is so disjointed to me. It is, but I find it glorious in that sense. Like, <laughs> like that's sort of stuff this movie needs. If you're going to be disjointed, you got to play into it. Is that when you were in full uh, Stockholm Syndrome mode and you were like, if they give me anything crazy, yeah, I'll accept yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, Divine eating a bird with feathers. Like, you know what? Sold. I got it. Like, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take I, it. I think... I think Rosie should have killed herself. That would have been a great end of the movie. If no, she shot herself, no, no, that no. they write off into the distance. How could she? No. Have Divine kill herself. Kill himself. <laughs> God damn it. Have Divine kill himself. Yeah. Gen- gen- welcome to gender pronouns the episode. <laughs> God damn. To- the, the future is horrible, folks. Like, I, like what's that mean? Yeah. Like, like what? Somebody like in 19, like the little boy, or the father reading a little boy, like a picture book in 1950, be like, dad, what's the future going to look like? I don't know, son, but big and beautiful things lay ahead of us. <laughs> 70 years later, we're talking about a trans best I uh, po- a movie podcast and we just keep tripping over pronouns yes. <laughs> yeah i do have to say I, I i hate memes i think i said that on this podcast before uh partly because i can't understand them because grammar is does not exist in the english language anymore especially when it comes to memes but i love the idea where it's like in the past they thought we'd have flying cars by now 2020 okay everybody Here's how to wash your hands correctly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> future's horrible. The future is horrible. It's hard to believe that like like the future seemed more promising like 15 years ago than it does now. Yeah, yeah. Zach and I were together. Not 15 was, years ago. Not 10 15 years ago. ago. 10 years 10 ago, years yeah. Ago. But I mean 15 years ago was still before the new stat. Before the dark times. Before the dark times. Before everything went to hell. We had some hope before me randomly picking essay topics by closing my eyes and pointing at a sheet in front of the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought back then those would be the good times? Oh, yep. Yeah. Oh, true that. But yeah, that was the second thing that really disappointed me about this movie, that the last two shots, three shots, whatever it is, just just threw me for such a loop. That I, I couldn't grasp it when I was watching it. It took me time to think about it. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing. You want to think about a movie. And I've said that before. You know, I I love movies that I can think about. Like we said, you know, Eraserhead. We can think about that forever. Um, more recently, Under the Silver Lake. There's, there's so many hours I've spent, you know, trying to interpret that movie. But this is the example of doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Where it makes me think of one thing and immediately tells me I'm wrong and I and I don't have time to regain my footing and actually flesh it out. Whereas something like Eraserhead, like uh, Under the Silver Lake, like uh, Zach's favorite film of all time, Revolver, you you don't realize that what you thought was wrong until maybe 10, 15 minutes later, and it actually makes your brain work. This doesn't give your time give yourself time to make your muscles work. You're just hit with it. And I think that gets back at the serialization, the TV style of it, that we have a movie where nothing happens, and then the last 20 minutes, everything gets crammed into. It's mm-hmm. it's almost whiplash. Yep. Yep. Couldn't have said any better myself. <laughs> that is uh, spot on. There's, there's kind of like, okay, folks, 
late night in cinemati status and snack because I, I honestly <laughs> I, he nailed it. There's there's nothing more to be said about this movie. There's yeah. Where were the where were the Carfax on this movie, Zach? <laughs> no, that no. Okay, that was a fantastic joke. Oh, I'm doing. I'm do, I'm beating it to death now. Just like this movie, like I'm beating it, it to I death. I liked it. That was a fantastic. Okay, that was an off mic joke, and it was phenomenal because it. it, it Rob distilled my quandary perfectly, <laughs> and it was funny at the same time. But yeah, Zach, Zach yeah. and I. Just so you know, it's not all. Uh, it's not all lust in the dust romance between Zach and I off mic. It's, there's actually some some uh, insightful comments that get made. Yes, I Carfax jokes. So I think before we get into our questions, there is one point to this movie. Uh, and once again, you know, uh, we talked about in Death Three Two Thousand. Remember that whole David Carradine not wanting to wear leather, and we had that profound question. I prefaced it. This is not like that, but I prefaced it with, you know, I'll leave it up to you, Zach, if you want to comment on it or not. Uh, but I know for me, the moment when we had Divine and Abel Wood show up to the saloon, they deal with the locals. Lainey Kazan shows up. All that stuff. Eventually, we are introduced to the character, the elderly prostitute of Big Ed. Big Ed. The, the moment that they introduced this character as Big Ed, I could only think of Big Ed Hurley from Twin Peaks, the wife of <laughs> Nadine. And yep. you stepped on my quiet drape runners again. And I just, I, I wanted this role to be played by Big Ed. I really wanted this from that point on to just get, I can't remember his name, unfortunately. I didn't write it down, but you know, he made his appearance in Twin Peaks, both the original two seasons and the revival. And he was in the straight story as the uh, tractor salesman. But every time they said big Ed, I just was like, you know, I just pictured that actor going, well, well, gosh, darn Nadine. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, you know, (laughs) My my nephew James and his Harley, he's run off and he's having sex with a wealthy woman on the outskirts of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> you can't I know this was before Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks is so powerful to me that if you name a character Big Ed, it's Big Ed Hurley. That's it. That's it. That's, That's all it. it's ever gonna be. Did you make oh. that connection, Zach? Or are you still trying to push Twin Peaks season two out of your head? I I've watched Twin Peaks almost 10 years ago, and I really have not thought about it since. Speaking to the audience right now, I am still deeply upset that when Twin Peaks Season 3 comes, 3, Revival, I know Zach and I... The Return! Yeah, we've debated what to call that whole thing, of course, but how did you not re-watch the first two seasons before that? Because I didn't care. I I wanted Twin Peaks. That's (sighs) the thing. I only wanted Twin Peaks as more David Lynch fodder. Yeah, I did not yeah, want yeah. it as a continuation of the Twin Peaks story. And I got that. And I love the fact that David Lynch did exactly what everybody hated about how season two ended. And he did it perfectly. And I love that. Like I got exactly what I wanted. Most of Twin Peaks The Return is great David Lynch stuff in the moment. Well, but all, re- you should say. Not all. Most. What do you mean most? No, there's stuff that goes. Like the Michael Cera like, monologue is weird. Like, that's, <laughs> that's weird. As a biker, as a leather-bound biker. Yes, that's weird. <laughs> the but, daughter of the two most, like, uh, timid characters ever in television history. We get someone no. who's, like, bravado and confidence is brimming over so much you know it's fake. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it, okay. <laughs> All right, fair. That is a fair point. But the thing is that, like, 
I never wanted Twin Peaks. Like again, I was against it when they announced it, and like when David Lynch like yes. quit because they're they're they trying to change it and they try to like cut him like. I short him like his budget. I'm like, great. Like we don't need any more of this. I want I ha- 18 episodes. Uh, that's not what we do here on Showtime. Okay, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's why when he did quit initially, I was thrilled because like we don't need this. Now I watched it and we got episode eight. And episode mm-hmm. eight is is one of the most incredible things ever put to the screen. It's you know, a I, phenomenal. I have to I have to tell you that I uh, I was explaining like I I. I have, you know, shared Twin Peaks, the return, the revival, whatever the hell we're calling it, um, with other people who have watched Twin Peaks. They've loved it. And there have been times I've been hanging out with them. And, you know, me and them, we have seen all 18 episodes, 18 parts, whatever you want to call it. And other people in the room will not be privy to it or Twin Peaks as a whole. And there's been moments where I will put on episode eight and we will watch the, like, nuclear bomb (sighs) scene. And and I will never forget, there was a moment where I put this on, and we're watching it, and I'm sitting there in the chair with a raging erection going, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what television should be. And the, my buddy goes, okay, everybody who doesn't know what this is, you have to understand, this is in the middle of, like, a crime drama. <laughs> like, like, this is the middle episode of a crime drama about, like, finding murderers and stuff and i'm like and i'm like oh you're only making me harder <laughs> <laughs> that i can like i can still re- like i tr- i don't think i've ever i think i rewatched it once i think you you like hit me up on facebook or texted me like the incredible. day after it happened and you were like i incredible. know you're not you were like i know you're not watching it till it's over but episode eight is fucking phenomenal and the it's same a, day it's the closest thing we'll ever get to a race ahead again yes it's just this, that and the same day, my, I talk to my parents, and they go, yeah, and my mom's like, yeah, yeah, dad keeps falling asleep during episode eight. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha now I know it's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, episode eight. You know, it's so funny. I have not thought about that in a while, but just thinking about it now, I come, like, I, it's weird that, like, there's so much going on in that episode. Oh, oh, it's and the creation it, of evil, like I said to you before. I, I, I don't even like analyzing it. I just I like just yeah. I, I like it. It's the same way. It's like, can you analyze a tidal wave? Sure, <laughs> but there is no visceral can you, exhilaration. Can you put it on a scale? Can you measure its velocity? Yes. Sure. Yes. It has a quantitative measurement, but does does that really do mm-hmm. it justice at the end of the day? And I'm with you, Zach. No, it does not. No, it doesn't. You can quantify it as much as you want. No, no, no. From everything, from the opening scene with the woodsman, to the middle part. Don't- don't, don't, don't. To the end part. With, stop, stop. It's don't only give revealed it by the book that I read afterwards. Stop, oh, it's fantastic. Stop, stop. Don't give it away. Because there's, there's, there's so much in that that is just perfectly unsettling. And it's, it's everything. Like, I think in a weird way, maybe we can t- bring this back to Paul Bartel. Like, David Lynch is another person that has sexual morality in his films. Oh, absolutely. And there's an argument like Private Parts comes out before Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Five years, right? Yeah, and like even though they're different movies, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I would argue, you know, Private Parts is more sexually like the the person to person, man to woman, or woman to woman. Uh, visit that episode for that discussion. Sexual charge. Eraserhead is much more of the person to child aspect. I've always taken it as. 
I think part of it even goes beyond that because okay. without making this an Eraserhead discussion. Too late. <laughs> no, no. That, it's, I oh, guess it's okay, you said Eraserhead. David Lynch is too late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that element of like in private parts where, yes, you have the, like you said, woman to woman relationship, but just male, female, I don't want to say pair bonding because that's too clean of a term. Yeah. But there is that level between Henry and Mary X that's very much. I don't want to say a further evolution of I of George and Cheryl. Oh, but I feel My that God. like there is a level of that there again. The the like obviously the baby, like like obviously the baby being a product of insemination. Mm-hmm. There's like again like not to bring this back to private parts, but private parts might be genuinely. One of the most important films that will never be aware of just how important it is. No, you're when you when you talked about that comparison to Eraserhead, it kind of made me realize something is that you know we talked a lot in our private parts discussion about how we had uh, Cheryl slash Cheryl wanting to be involved with um, the photographer George, right? I think it was George. Mm-hmm. Yeah, George. And and we kind of had that distance put between them by Aunt Martha. Why did you say that name? Because it, because it's in the movie Batman, that's why I said that name. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. Eraserhead, we get the the almost polar opposite, where Henry and Mary X are involved, and when it's revealed that she's pregnant, we have the mother of Mary X going, "Henry, I hope you'll do the right thing." Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great. Oh my. Um, okay, I know what I'm watching tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I told Revolver. you. That- <laughs> I, I, it's 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 the same thing, folks. Every Cinematis episode needs to end the way Pinky and the Brain did. Where I'm gonna be like, Rob, what are we gonna do, we tonight? do to tonight? The same thing we do every night, Zach. Watch Revolver. <laughs> Watch Revolver. <laughs> Revolver, great. Everybody, tune in next month. Uh, four weeks of Revolver. The Revolver series. The Revolver series. But uh, but. <laughs> But that's a sort of brilliance of Paul Bartel, and that's why this makes this film so frustrating. You're right. That he gave us one of these films that we're never, ever going to know how important it was, like how truly like the roots that it laid for things to come later in life. You, I think you just hit the nail on the head is that, you know, we've been talking about this whole movie. Sure, we have problems with it. Like I like at, laid out with those big two. We talked about the boringness and the dryness of a lot of it. But, you know... I think that you have just created a great point for not only us and this podcast, but this entire series is that we are doing the Paul Bartel series. And every week when we do a new movie and I watch every movie he's done up to that point, we start to lose the analysis for that specific movie and get into it more as a whole, as his Mm -hmm. directorial status. And and like we said before, that's why this is the bummer that it is. But I think you've encapsulated it now perfectly. Rob, I really want to talk about like, – oh, God, you're – I can't watch Eraserhead. Do you want to talk it. about Big Ed? You want to talk about Big Ed no, Hurley? I want, no, I don't want to talk about – I kind of want to watch – You want to talk about the Otis Redding song that plays in the revival no, when Big no, Ed stop, and, and stop, his love stop, actually stop, fall? Stop, stop, you, stop. Banana. You want to talk no, about the no, Sopranos? What's the, what's the safe word? What's the safe word? Um, there is no safe word. Yes, the problem. There's no safe. What's the, sa- that's the safe word? The safe word is the big red button at the bottom of Skype that has the hang up phone. 
No, because I get voice, I get angry like Dropbox and YouTube. Yeah. Messages. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna get Facebook voice messages, Dropbox messages, YouTube <laughs> messages, and I'm gonna go Zach piece these all together to finish the episode. <laughs> that should be that should be a piece of Cinemati's merchandise. What's the safe word? There is no safe like word. Like a t-shirt, like a t-shirt that says "What's the safe word?" There is no safe word. On the back, at the back, no, on the front it says "What's the safe word?" and on the back it says "There is no safe word." <laughs> Cinemati's late night movies with Robin Zach. I I could totally get behind that. <laughs> I would wear that. I would wear that shirt, and people would be like, "The best part, you could be waiting in line, like trying to check out your groceries, and someone just like like bumps into you, and they're like, excuse me, um, I'm sorry, I was just so mesmerized by that horrible shirt that you're wearing.' <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, I guess, I guess the last thing on David Lynch I have to ask you, Zach, is, uh, what year is it? Oh God, that ending is so. Zach perfect. hates every time I bring that up, but I no, I love that. Like, that's I can still like that's the thing. Like Rob and like his like weird, not weird, his own unique perspective on a lot of media, being like, "Oh, we go watch it once it's finished." I remember that ending and looking because I watched that in real time and looking at the clock and being like, "He's gonna do it. Like he's gonna do it again." That's one he's of my gonna... favorite stories that you've ever told me from your like media viewing experiences, where you were like, "Okay." It's like an hour, or it's like X hours. I don't know what time it aired, but X hours, 58 minutes. And Kyle McLaughlin just changed universes. What the fuck is going to happen? Yeah, and I, I'm like, I'm like, he's good. Like, and, like, and it's slow and nothing. Like, it's that David Lynch glacial methodical mm-hmm. pacing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I'm like, it's happening. Like, he's going to do it again. Like, he's going to take all these stupid idiots that want a happy just. Yep. And nobody, he gave them the happy ending at the end of like at the halfway mark. He gave them the happy yeah. ending. Oh yeah. So you, so you can't. So you can't complain. And he acknowledges it too. That's oh god, that ending and we is followed, so brilliant. And we followed up with stuff like the unsexiest sex scene in <laughs> yes. between Rob McLaughlin and Laura Dern, which like is my favorite sex scene ever because of how unsexual it is. And then what? You got Kyle McLaughlin breaking fingers at a restaurant and then asking what year it is. And it's amazing. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, oh God, that was so perfect. And being like, and immediately going on the social media and watching everybody be angry. And I'm like, oh God. And the best part is like, and we'll get, we'll get into Twin Peaks and return at some point. Yeah. Tune but- in next month. Not month, but next <laughs> podcast for, we do every episode of Twin Peaks from the beginning to the revival. Can't oh, wait God, till we get no, to the Billy no. Zane episodes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you please, remember no. in season two yeah, when Sherilyn Fenn Rob, is like, she, Billy Zane is leaving on the plane and she runs up to him. She goes, no, no, I, remember. I love you. And he goes, I love you too. And she goes, I'm a virgin. And he's like, whoa, we're going to fuck now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the people, I, I'm pretty sure I've said it on this podcast before. I know there's a lot of people that are like, Twin Peaks season one and the return are the only good things. I love all of Twin Peaks. When fucking, uh, what's his name? The the Horn, the guy, J- Jeremy Horn, whatever his name is, who runs the hotel when he gets knocked back and th- into thinking his Civil War models are real life in season two. I love all that shit. I love it. What year I, is it? <laughs> what year is it? Yeah, I haven't watched Twin Peaks enough to like really pick up on it. I know it slows down a lot in season two. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I disagree with. No, but like, I I never a lot of people like I didn't like season two, but for a different reason. Like, I like the melodrama, 
And when David Lynch came back toward the end of season two, that's when I started losing interest in it. Like oh. I liked the melodrama, but like it got too weird. Like it went like it went from like like season one is a pretty good balance of like melodrama and weird. Oh, absolutely. And then season two goes like um, like it starts with the melodrama. And then, like, in the last, like, what, two or three episodes, it goes really hard into David Lynch world. Yes, because David so, Lynch comes back and he goes, what? You fucked up everything. I'm going to undo it. <laughs> yes. He, he, I, the executives messed up my show. I'm going to clean it up. And well, then it gets well, canceled. The, the season two finale, I, I hold in high regard, just like the return. Like, the season two finale with Dale Cooper in the Black Lodge is is a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. Eh. I, I can't, you know, I can't, it's amazing. I can't. It's amazing in that like, like six characters <clears throat> get blown up in a bank. It's great. <laughs> I, I, <clears throat> I know, but that was never intended to be. I think a lot of people put a lot of weight on that ending because like, it's what they only had for like 20, like God, what? Almost oh, 30 years. You're talking about the, the retrospective. Aspect. Yes. It's like, okay, Oh, it's okay. like, like it, end, like, it didn't end that way on purpose. It ended that way. Cause I got the rug pulled out from underneath them. And that's where I love the ending of the return because David Lynch realizes, like, oh, I'm never going to do this again. A, because they're never going to give me this much money to do this again. And B, I'm too old to do this. So I'm going to put these characters in a spot. And again, I don't want to give that ending away, but like, I remember all the articles, like the next day, people like, oh, what does it mean? And I'm like, it makes perfect sense. It's probably yep. one of the most clear. Like, again, it's my own interpretation, so I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. But I've always interpreted it as it's in, again, I've got to be as cryptic as humanly possible. <laughs> is that if you know anything about the world of Twin Peaks, you know Dale Cooper only had one goal, and it yep. was to save Laura Palmer. Project and, Blue Book. Yep. Yes, and he was able to do that. He was able to do the impossible, but it cost him everything in the process everything and and he knows that it's going to cost him everything because in the halfway point of the last episode all of his friends are there and he acknowledges he tells them like this is the last time i will ever see any of you thank you for everything that you have given me and he acknowledges that and that's Mm -hmm. the brilliance of the ending is that you can do the impossible not only is that the brilliance of the ending but that's the brilliance of david lynch because in that same scene we have gordon Played by David Lynch, who says, "Thank you, Cooper." <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it, it's someone who knows the characters they set up and know how to finalize something without making it emotional, without not with with not making it physically on screen. Absolutely, yes, yes. The same reason why everybody who hates the end of Lost is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's thing I have to say is that like I something I'm a little disappointed about not the actual content, but kind of just I don't want to say narrative because it's not narrative. The culture around Twin Peaks oh, Return sure, is sure. that it never got that ending never got the attention it deserved. No, because everybody is, wanted to talk about episode eight. Everybody wanted to talk about oh David Lynch crazy, and that's but, it. It overshadows but, everything. But that's the thing is that like I think. People like Twin Peaks, and I mean Twin Peaks as in seasons one, two, because it was like part of that like late 80s, early 90s nostalgia. Yes. I don't think they like it because they, they appreciate anything that's going on. I'm not saying that like as in everybody, again, it's there's, again, there's more people liking Twin Peaks than ever before. Mm. But I think that's the problem. People go back to Twin Peaks now because it's hipster. 
and contrarian to look at it now. And it's the same reason why people dismiss the straight story. Is that like, oh, it's cool to like weird Lynch. It's not cool to like the like um sincere lynch yeah and, that that's what I, I hear you know whenever i hear anybody talk about the first season of twin peaks they're like oh it's changed tv and i'm like well sure you know but what do you remember about it and they're like there was a one-armed dude and i'm like okay the log lady the log lady the log lady and i'm like okay but do, like do you know like the, that the arm ended up being a little person and a tree later on did you know the log lady like you know had actual meaning in the Canadian like stakeout at the end of season one, and they're like, "No, iconotry," blah, and it's like you never watched they're, it; you just heard about it. That's the thing; they consume it as content. They're yep. not consuming it as art. It's yep. that it's 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 the reason why I hate for the many reasons why I hate streaming services, but is that it's just fodder. Mm-hmm. Twin mm-hmm. Peaks. Like I, again, <clears throat> when I got into Twin Peaks, I had to go buy the golden box set for like a hundred dollars. Sure. People and you had to just, buy the uh, soundtrack from Fye. Remember that yes, story you told us? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm a very angry grad student. And God, welcome back to Vanilla Sky, everybody. <laughs> uh, uh, folks, I, okay, don't, I, I guess we should say no new updates. Nobody else has contacted us to tell us. Uh, how many how many times it takes, what the definitions of a sex session is. We you are, haven't broken that record. We haven't heard from any fans, but I haven't broken the four time record. Have you? No. In the recent okay, no. I have yeah. not. Tune in next month for Rob, the four time your- sex in a night series. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, has your body made a commitment by doing uh, anything well, specific? Well, my my body definitely made a commitment. Uh, it was to season eight of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> episode, Bo- episode eight of Twin Peaks, not season Bo- eight. <laughs> both of our bodies make commitments to that episode. Actually, yeah. funny enough, bringing this full circle, somebody swallows an organic thing in that episode, too. So oh, actually, they, yeah. they don't voluntarily do Okay. Okay. I got to be very careful. I don't, know if you wanna, I don't know if you want to bleep this out, but I remember <laughs> when we were talking – because after after the whole return was over, I bought it on DVD because I got a great deal for the DVD and the Boo. book. Boo. Oh, no. yeah, I know. Yes, you booed me Zach. But I Boo. got the DVD and the book. And I wanted the book really badly. And I read the book, and the book clearly states that the woman, the young girl at the end yes, of episode I know, 8, I know, I know. is get... Laura Palmer's mother. Sarah and I Palmer. Said, Sorry. It's Sarah Palmer. Yes, Laura Palmer's mother, Sarah Palmer. And I said to you, like, spoiler alert, it's Sarah Palmer. She's the one who gets the bug in her mouth. And I will never forget, you said to me, is that really a spoiler? <laughs> <laughs> you, you said something along the lines of, that's so obscure David Lynch knowledge. Does that really spoil anything? And I was like, good point, Zach. <laughs> But like that's the thing that people get like that's why like that happened a lot with Twin Peaks stuff like in 2017, people got so hung up on minutia, mm-hmm. and it's like that's not the point. That's not the point of it. The point is that you have all this stuff going on. Yeah. Like the fact that you have this this creature violating a a young girl's mouth and going in her, and it's like okay, like. All the, the, uh, the, that's great song is playing. When the twilight is gone, the radio show that puts everybody to sleep, you know? Oh. Mm-hmm. When the twilight is gone, ah. and no songbirds are singing, ah. when the twilight is gone, ah. you come into my heart. Ah. 
And here in my heart you will stay While I pray It's amazing! Rob, Rob, Rob. Like, I, I, that's one of my like dream Halloween costumes. <laughs> oh. Gotta lie. Gotta lie. Yeah. Gotta lie. And I hope when if you ever dress up in that Halloween costume, you give me no notice. You show up <laughs> in my apartment and you squeeze my head till it explodes, Zach. I will die happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the American dream there that's the Samadhi I'm gonna dream. feel the pressure on my skull I'm gonna open my eyes it's gonna be you with like dirt on your face and a cigarette in your mouth and I'm just gonna know I'm dead and I'm gonna be happy about it <laughs> <laughs> Rob if you had to, like, if you had had a choice to show somebody who'd never experienced either one of these before eraser head or episode 8 in a vacuum oh which would you pick? I think I have to go episode eight because, like I said earlier, I've done that before. You know, I I agree. I, I think like Eraserhead is. Oh god, it's really weird saying so, this. It's so, so be, weird to be to be fair on an episode that has not been released yet. I we discuss me and someone who's not Zach discuss when I got a dude to go to a theater, an art house theater, where they were showing Eraserhead, and during the movie. I looked at him. He was sitting directly to my right. We were in the first row. Small art house theater, so it's not like we're craning our necks. We get the full screen. Uh, th this dude is one of the most extrovertive and confident people you will ever meet in your lives. I've never seen him literally horrified before. And the scene that comes into mind is when the baby is laughing at Henry. I looked over to him, and he looked like he was going to shit himself. <laughs> that's, like, that's... So I'm, I'm kind of torn. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of torn over this stuff. I, uh, a racer head is a little bit too high of a pedestal for me. That's my problem. Is that like, yeah, I and, don't, and I, the I, issue with the racer head is you need to get the people to sit through what? 12 minutes of somebody walking through a wasteland with no dialogue. Yeah. yeah and, that, and that'd be, that, that would be, oh. that was hard 10 years ago. Never mind now. That would be next to impossible. Now you'd have to sit there mm -hmm. Like, and that's where the feet, like, oh God, like that's like, I don't know which would be worse watching a racer head, like in somebody's residence in a <laughs> residence or like in a theater and having the possibility of people ruin it with cell phones. Mm, that's part of the reason when I saw it in that art house theater, I wanted to be first row. I wanted nothing between me and the screen. Because this was the same art house theater I saw Dune in where everybody laughed constantly. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like, I feel like at this point, like I, I can much like the reason why we'll never talk about a racer head on here on until the podcast, very end yeah. on this podcast. Yes, on this podcast, is I don't think I could ever do it justice. Like that's yep. the thing. Like, I, that is the like we've joked. It's not entirely wrong. It's the ultimate chasing the dragon because that is the high. Like that is. Like episode eight was a great like unexpected. Cause I guess I remember going into that just like I knew it was gonna be weird because I I read I don't know why I think I I tuned into that like a little bit late so I remember seeing okay. Twitter reactions about it. Yeah, but, like what, uh, doesn't that episode start? That's the next episode when uh, Bad Cooper and yes. Ray break out of jail and they're on the lamb that type of yeah. thing. Yeah, and you yeah, get and the that... the gist that Ray is a good guy working with Jeffries, but Jeffries is a we don't know what Jeffries is yet. Who is Judy? 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, we get the great woodsman scene and some of the best. Like I've said, I think I said on this podcast and I've said to Zach many times, you want to know why Twin Peaks, the return is so good at the end of every single episode when the credits roll and it gets to sound design and sound editor. There's only one name and it's David Lynch. That's why that is so good. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. the the sound they play during the woodsman scene and the digging out the orb and oh, it's haunting. I can't even recreate it. It's so unnatural. But from the first time to the millionth time I've seen it, it just gets me. It's something unreal. It's horrifying, but it's nice. <laughs> it's- uh, it is. It is absolutely nice. You know, you know, I I actually like, you know, people, I'm sure I, I can't remember if I've ever watched the episode with other people. But when um when they go to the abandoned trailer park and David Lynch or, or Gordon Cole almost gets sucked into the Black Lodge and Matthew Lillard's head explodes in the back of the yep. cop car. Yeah, I'm like. I'm like fucking grabbing the sides of my couch, shaking it, going, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> and Laura Dern's like, oh, it was it was that crazy dude. And they were like, we didn't see any crazy dude. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't watched. God, the return was over two and a half years, almost two I and a half going watched, on three years ago. I have watched the return three times in entirety. How you and really? I've, I've only yep. watched it. And yeah, when I'm not time. watching The Return, I will go back and watch certain episodes. Specifically, I think it's episode 11 after Amanda Seyfried, the daughter of uh, Bobby and. Oh, fuck. Bo- who is Bobby's girlfriend? Well, you know, you know, Bobby the cop now. Amanda Seyfried, she mm-hmm. gets through the whole thing with the, with the dude killing himself in the woods. And they're at the. They're at Norma's diner. And they're like, we. Oh, oh, of course, Bobby and Madchen Amick. Madchen Amick, sure, uh, the, the wait. Yeah. Oh my God. Let me tell you. Quick detour. We've talked about on this podcast how much Rob loves Lucy Liu. In the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, <laughs> early '90s, Madchen Amick. Holy well, shit. Well, Beautiful yeah. Woman. Well, Beautiful yeah. woman. But it's Bobby and Madchen Amick, and they're talking to Amanda Seyfried, and they're like, and she's like, I've done so wrong by you. You're my parents. I should love you. Blah blah blah. And they're having that really heartfelt moment. And then a bullet, like a gunshot, goes through the diner. The lights go out. Everybody goes, hits the ground. Bobby's the sheriff or the cop or the deputy or whatever. And he has to go see what's going on. And we get this whole scene right outside of the diner where you, you know a horn is constantly honking. 
and and there's a a couple fighting outside of a minivan, and the woman is like, "How could you do this?" Blah blah blah, and the and the husband's like, "Oh, you fucking bitch! Like this is all your fault." And Bobby's like, "Calm down, calm down. What's going on?" And you find out that the little kid in the back seat of the minivan found a gun and shot it while they were driving, and the the whole traffic is backed up and. The other cop shows up, the young one who wasn't in the original series, and it all follows Bobby, and a horn is constantly honking. Like, I'm not talking quick honks. It's like, for like minutes straight. And he's like, I'm, he's like, okay, I understand what's going on. This, this deputy is going to help you out. I'm going to get this woman to stop honking her horn. He goes over to this car. This woman's in the car like, we have to get home. Her uncle's coming home for her birthday. And there's this other lady in the passenger seat like vomiting onto herself it's it's the most stressful thing i thought i'd ever seen until i saw uncut gems <laughs> do you remember well, the scene that i'm talking no, about i do not at all this is okay literally no one ever does i don't understand why people don't remember this i have never been more on the edge of my seat in like an emotional context not a what the fuck is happening context but an actual stressful context then watching this, and I'm pretty sure it's episode 11. that big Ed's gas one. You know what? I heard shots. That kid found a gun evidently in the back of his van and shot through the window into the double R. These are his parents, I think. I need IDs on both of them. Ma'am, please! I'm gonna try and stop this woman from honking her horn and get this traffic moving. I got it, mother. Please, ma'am. Ma'am, please. Please, ma'am. What are you doing? 
We're trying to get home. We're already late. We're late for dinner. It's way past 6.30. Why is this happening? I saw that gun go shooting out the window. Her uncle is joining us. She hasn't seen him in a very long while. We're late. We've got miles to go. Please, we have to get home. She's sick. Oh! Oh! Oh, God! Ah! 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 Oh! 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 Ah! 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 A horn is, oh my god, Zach. Okay, Zach, your homework is to go back and watch all the Twin Peaks before we record uh, three days from now. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's going to be on the two-year anniversary special. This going to be Twin Peaks, <laughs> yeah. the homework. But, but no, I think the whole point of what I'm saying is, if anybody remembers the scene, I hope you love it as much as I do. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's glorious. That's why we love David Lynch. He knows how to make you feel uncomfortable, regardless, something through his filmmaking. And that's where, maybe, to tie it back in, Lust in the Dust fails. We feel nothing. Yes, it is a hollow viewing experience. Oh, God, what year is it? <laughs> Who All am right, I? Rob. Am I going somewhere? Uh, so that's Rob, a Sopranos reference. I, I, I know. I, I'm 100% <laughs> ignorant on that. So he's got to keep those sort of uh, philosophical Okay, in three days from now, you're going to watch all Twin Peaks and all the Sopranos, right? I'm just, I'm just not going to sleep. I'm just going I'm <laughs> to I'm have multiple TVs on, much like from the Spirit of the Way days where I had multiple things playing at a given time. No more, Butchie. No more. All right, Rob. Anything else about this? I guess. I guess the final thing I have to say about this movie. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm all good on less in the dust. But uh, what do you got? Final thing is, I, I guess I've always like to do my research, like on podcasts, YouTube. Yeah. And when you type in "lust in the dust" in the back, like into searches, search results, you get a bunch of stuff that says something. It's like a bunch of like religious stuff. Like I left my lust in the dust. What? Like it's like religious stuff, being like how you left behind those urges. You don't and even I find get that pictures of our romantic getaway. Well, not not on podcasts and YouTube, Rob. They're not on there. Okay, that's that's okay. that's I know, different. I know that's, that's different websites. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> at Lust in the Dust on Instagram, Lust underscore in underscore the underscore dust on Instagram. Just so the audience knows, this was a complete blindside. I gave no, I gave Zach no notion that I was going to be joking about a romantic getaway between the two of us. <laughs> no, just in case you couldn't figure it out for yourself. That I've now ran into the dust. Oh, is it time? I think it's time. We're going to cut like 45 minutes of this episode out because it's a Twin Peaks and David Lynch ran. God, I mean, we haven't even gotten to two hours yet, so it deserves to stay in just to fulfill it. And when Ugh. else are we going to do it, right? <laughs> fair. That is fair. But yeah, no, I thought that was funny, though, that you get a bunch of, like, religious stuff about, like, leaving your lust, like, in the past when you oh. type this movie in. Yeah. So uh, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. Yep. All right, Rob. 
Cinemati and or late night movie. <laughs> Very quiet one right there. But yes, I'm ready. So I think this is one of the cases where um, I have the same explanation to both answers for Cinemati's and late night. But the decision is split. So I'm going to say no to Cinemati's because it's a parody movie of the spaghetti western genre. And while it does have very minimal Paul Bartel flair, it doesn't live up to anything that I want or I think other parodies have come to uh, bring me. So I'm going to say no to Cinemodities. Doesn't do anything special. But for Late Night, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to say yes. It's another parody movie to add to the list. And if you got somebody, maybe a Know Your Audience kind of case, who's seen the, the things like Blazing Saddles, High Anxiety, Top Secret, you know, those big names... And they like parodies. This, I don't think, would be the worst to show them. Because maybe there's some good fun to be had with another person as you get through some of the crumbs this movie has to offer. And that's probably the nicest way I can put those answers. Fair. I think that's, I think that's a, a, a decent way of describing this. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great sound. I don't know. There's something about that sound I absolutely love. <laughs> The things that we learn uh, on these discussions, folks. I heard that at a uh, at a concert. That's where it came from. Why really? it's come up in the last few episodes. I was at a concert, and it was one of those things where it was like I was waiting to see the main act, and they had like their uh, – it was a rap concert. You know, Rob does that rap nonsense. Uh, but like before, the main act or the leading act wasn't the rapper. It was just his DJ, like mixing stuff to kill time. And he played that noise, and that's why I call it the rap horn. I don't know what it's actually called. But, like, every time you'd play it in this club, like, blaring my eardrums out, I was like, oh, my God, I love this. And so that's why I've been recreating it. Cool. <laughs> do you want to give it a shot, Zach? No, or are you gonna, I do not. No, you know? Uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it to you. You make okay. it your exclusive. Maybe, maybe in our two-year extravaganza, Zach will give it a shot. Yes. Maybe. Okay, let's take that to three-year three year extravaganza. Oh, 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 we have to wait a year and a week <laughs> for uh-huh. that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, it's going to be a no for me, dog, on both fronts. Uh, late night movie, this is boring. Uh, Cinemati, no. Late night, if you can find the clip of Divine eating like a raw bird, maybe. That's just a funny visual. <laughs> Literally think, the last shot of the movie. <laughs> that's a funny visual. Watching Divine eat a bird is fun. Um, yeah, I, I guess the only maybe the slight recommendation I would give is that if you do want to see everything Divine has ever done, then you'd have to watch this. It's more essential piece of the divine canon than it is yeah. the Paul Bartel one. That's a that's a good point. And I think on that point, I also want to bring up something that I'm now realizing I missed from my notes, but I think it ties in directly to Cinemodities and Late Night. Uh, for Late Night, maybe. If, uh, if you're ever watching a movie where you have the chance to watch a film at Late Night with somebody who really likes Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny, show them this. Because Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny is inspired by this movie. Uh, mm. Because, of course, in this movie, we get the fact that the map to the gold is half of it is tattooed on Divine's ass, half of it is tattooed on Lainey Kazan's ass. And they call them birthmarks, but I think it's revealed later by Cesar Romero that is tattoos, whatever. But if Zach remembers, because I don't know if he's ever seen Tenacious D and The Pick of Destiny... That is how they get their name. When Jack Black and Kyle Gass both realize that they have a birthmark on their butt, 
They stick their butts together, and it forms the phrase tenacious D. I think I've I've lost Zach. <laughs> yes, after all this, that's what finally did, folks. That's, it so, yeah, if, if, uh, if you know someone who likes Tenacious D, show them this movie. It's the inspiration for it. I can't imagine anyone who likes Tenacious D would really like this. No, in all honesty, absolutely not. Tenacious D, the movie that parodies Clockwork Orange for a scene and is about, you know, rock and roll music, they would not enjoy this movie in the slightest. Or vice versa. If you like this, you probably wouldn't like Tenacious D. Hey, fans, prove us wrong. Send us an angry email. Tell us you got an offer for us. Maybe you'll get some dick pics. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, from Rob, not from me. I, uh, That's disc- like, this, is, this should not be at the disclaimer. end. This should be disclaimer. at the beginning. <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer. That's, I, I'm not touching that, folks. Not not touching that with a 39 and a half foot pole. I've collected so many dick pics, I could make a mosaic that looks like something else that's, entirely. That, that... that not touching it, folks. That's on him. <laughs> the Zach portion of the Cinematis podcast and restaurant does not condone any of the weird oh, nonsense you. that Rob's promoting. Oh, you. Because, baby, you bring out the beast in me. <laughs> All right, Rob, snack. Okay, I got a, I got a few snacks. Uh, the first one, I think we might already have. I did not do a search through the spreadsheet, but my first snack is one word. Very nicely, gin. <laughs> you need to serve gin because, like uh, Divine says, she breaks her gin. She says, "My gin! I'm gonna die of thirst out here." So, if anybody ever comes in the restaurant dying of thirst, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the infinite void of Mars 2112 space is a spot on like a New York marathon. Who knows? And they come in looking for water. We give them gin. That's my mm. first snack. Uh, now, the next thing. At the end of the movie, we get the implication that Divine shoots the beer, the bird out of the sky and eats it. This also happens at the start of the movie. If you remember, when Divine is in that oasis and uh, our no-named hero, Abel Wood, is outside of it, she says something like, don't leave me, I'll die out here. And he shoots a bird and it lands on the ground, kind of implying that it'd be like, this is your food, that's how I'm going to help you. Now, Zach, tell me if you think otherwise. In our infinite void of a restaurant, there has to be some birds or aviary creatures caught in it, right? <laughs> yeah, you'd and, think so. Most likely breeding. You know, if this is their environment, they're going to build nests. They're going to steal, I don't know, the the hair from our animatronics, uh, the, the spindly <laughs> stuff from our food. And they're going to build nests out of it, right? So we, we might have... No, not my. I'm sorry. I'm going to take that back. We have, we have our own ecosystem in the Cinematities restaurant, some of which is now populated by aviary creatures. So why don't we get our waiters or maybe hire some people? This is what I want to throw to you to shoot them down for food. And I think before you answer, Zach, make note of this. If we say yes to this, if this is the case, we are one step closer to the Cinematities restaurant becoming self-sustaining Ooh. if we can hunt the food for our dishes in the restaurant this blows things wide open man this blows things wide open what do you think i i, I kind of like it kind of kind of i don't know i don't like the idea of the the wildlife poking at my animatronics <laughs> I should have I realized that you wouldn't like that. We have to repeatedly replace the Vox Lux. 
yeah uh, wig because birds are taking it for nests <laughs> exactly before right before, before a couple two weeks years we're hitting the real ecosystem yeah. questions of cinematities a couple a couple of weeks from now but the, i guess it shouldn't be that big of a concern because we know it's going to happen to the box lux animatronic in like two weeks true true so okay you know maybe that maybe that's something that uh we could we could eventually work in and if we think it's okay uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you now that I think about it. You know, maybe we should have the people, our waiters or anybody we hire who are shooting down these birds, maybe that's where they aim. When they get too close to the animatronics to damage our property, that's when we shoot them type of thing. Yes. Yeah, okay, okay. I get behind that. And then, of course, we sell that as food. <laughs> that's, of course, what we're going at with our snacks. We are, like- we are, we are killing animals that have somehow gained life in our infinite void of a restaurant and we are selling them as food it it, it, it it's the circle of life hakuna matata hakuna cinematata that uh, we gotta figure out what uh what cinemati cinematis is in swahili <laughs> you want to you want to take an an untranslatable word and translate it is that what you're saying Yes. You know, there's all those people who are like, you know, you know, any like James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and and uh, uh, Ulysses by David Foster Wallace, uh, not Ulysses, uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. They're so dependent on portmanteaus and acronyms that they're untranslatable. We want to bridge that gap. We want to break new ground. <laughs> I like it. I, I like the idea of that. I can't I can't say I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because you already kind of took my thing for obviously birds okay. and stuff. I'm going to do. I know I kind of run into the ground at this point when it comes to animatronic figures. Sure. And I figured an animatronic couldn't do this deceased person justice, so I'm going to suggest a divine hologram. Ooh. But like the South Park ones where they're sentient. Sentient? Sentient, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So oh interesting. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be a specific character of Divine's. It would be Divine rolling through the shtick of Divine just as a hologram. Kind of like the hologram Johnny Coltrane from Vanilla Sky. Something like that. A little bit I told you, more South Parky though. Yeah, yeah, more more it has a personality. It has yeah. a personality. Has personality. You're getting into territory I don't like, Zach, given technology personality. You know what I have to th- say about that. <laughs> next thing, next week, you're going to be saying we need our droids to scream when they fall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I could, I could think about that, and I, and you know, you got me hooked with the fact that it's divine. I, I, I can't help but say I love divine. You know, Pink Flamingos, this great performances, of course. I, I think as a cinematic hallmark, uh, divine should be a part of it. Absolutely. That's that's my snack, folks. That's another that's entertainment piece. Okay, I have two more, but is oh, that all you had? You of course you do, Rob. Of course you do. <laughs> so we get a scene in this movie when Abel Wood takes a shower, and uh, the person who is giving him this shower by pouring buckets of water on him is the young, sexy Hispanic lady who in the movie I believe is named Nifta. I think that's Ninfa or Nifta or something like that. Um, but right before the shower happens, he like Abel Wood knows that he's going to take a shower, and she has the buckets of water, and they make eye contact, and she says, with or without. 
And he goes, well, with, of course. And Nifta uh, immediately proceeds to put a blindfold on and then pour buckets of water on him. I, I don't really get this joke if it's supposed to be a joke. But I really like the fact that if we have our wait staff talking to customers and they go, hey, I would like the uh, the burger. I think we have a burger somewhere on there. Or I would somewhere. like the, the Goosebumps mystery camera meal, you know, something like, or, or, you know, devious camera meal, whatever the fuck it was called. And as a response, the wait staff goes with or without. And that's it. We had another, <laughs> we had another line of mystery to our ordering process. Because, hell, you might have thought we had enough. We don't have enough. So with or without is something we have to train our wait staff to ask. With or without. Uh, it's going to make their jobs even harder, right, Rob? Oh, of course. You know, like I said before, we do not treat our employees well. Uh, the last snack I have is not a snack or a wait staff thing. It is actually a motto or something that we should put in big letters in the Cinemodities restaurant. I know we have a lot of mottos. I don't remember them all. Blah, blah, blah. But there's a scene in this movie where a divine asks or she says something to Big Ed and Big Ed goes, oh, they might be here for the gold. And divine says, what gold? And Big Ed responds with, I didn't say gold. I said mold. They're here for the mold. Do you think he came for the gold? The gold? Did I say gold? I meant mold. Do you think he came for the mold? When I heard this. I formulated what might be my favorite Cinemodities restaurant slogan. I'm going to throw it at you right now, Zach. Cinemodities restaurant. Come for the gold, stay for the mold. <laughs> I think this should be put on our coupons. Which, as everyone knows, <laughs> when we have coupons, they are not deals. Like, the coupons are like, buy one for three. Not buy three for one, buy one for three. Like it's if you have right. a coupon, you're getting you're getting a worse deal. And on those coupons and or whatever cutout of circular ads we print these on, I want to say Cinemodities restaurant. Come for the gold, stay for the mold. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's cool. It's cool. Isn't one of our mottos like don't be happy or, or don't expect to be pleased or something like that. Didn't we say it's, that? <laughs> anticipate disappointment. Yeah, you come into the restaurant and then you, while you're waiting for the hostess, that's the first thing you see, like expect disappointment. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something we would do. That, it that is shocking that we're course. still in business, folks. Indeed. Uh, I guess Indeed. after the government money, it's not that shocking. <laughs> All right, but that was it. Those are my snacks. Uh, did you have any others? No, I think that's it, Rob. Well, then I think to uh, to throw this episode uh, on its way and we get it out in the can, we have to say that, yes, next week, next Monday, a week from now, we will get the final installment in our Paul Bartel series with another one of his movies that is very famous, uh, the scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. But before then, if you are a diehard Cinemodities fan... Tune in on Saturday, March 28th, as we will be releasing a bonus episode, our two-year extravaganza. I know I'm excited. I know Zach's excited, marginally. But I hope indeed, our audience is indeed. excited because it is going to be great. Remember last year? 
There's going to be performance reviews. There's going to be spreadsheet fill-ins. We're going back into the canon discussing how to fill in and better our restaurant. There's going to be clips. There's going to be nudity. There's going to be high-impact sexual violence. It's going to be great. (laughs) I think I might have promised too much right there, Zach. Yes, it's a little, a little too much. Anything you have to say about the two-year extravaganza? And yes, don't don't even sigh. Our audience expects that, right? <sighs> and sighs exactly. That's, that's the best that. answer I can give. Wait folks. till you hear my performance review for you this year. It's a it's it's a doozy. I've been working on it. Peek behind the curtains. I've been working on it for weeks now, maybe months. I've been trying to perfect this performance review because. Unlike some people, and by process of elimination, only two people work in this restaurant, me and you, I put effort into our performance reviews, Zach. I can't even say this with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> that makes at least one of us. Oh, Okay, other than that, if you have nothing to say about our bonus episode, uh, catch us next week for the but- final. Oh, sure. But Rob, how are we going to end this week's episode? That, that, well, that's where I was going. <laughs> I I think that to end this week's episode, we should take one of the musical numbers from this movie and play it in reverse. The only question is, do we take Divine's or do we take Larry Gili's Mother's? Oh, I think we both know the answer to that. Divine's? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm glad we're in agreement because that's exactly what it says in my notes. Under my ending little note, it says, let's play Divine's song from the movie in reverse. Perfect. We're in agreement on something for once.